Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That sees the day. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? Madness and Magic. Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I'm Justin, joined by my co-host Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. This evening we're joined by a very special guest, Academy Award winning screenwriter, producer, and director, Mr. Tom Shulman. Tom, how the hell are you? I'm good. How about you? Doing good, man. It's good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Where are you? We're in, I'm in South Carolina. Angelique is in Georgia. Okay. I'm from Tennessee, so we got that corner covered. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we can start at the beginning here. It's pretty known that, well known that Dead Poet Society is semi-autobiographical. Uh, take us to the early years. Did you do a lot of the, did you have a love of reading, writing, film from an early age? How was your creativity cultivated, would you say? Uh, I would say all of the above, but mostly, re- <laughs> mostly reading and film, you know, and uh, I mean, I was a, uh, film lover in college and my I think senior year in college I was given the option to either uh, write a term paper or make a film about one of the books we were reading so we a bunch of us got together and made films I think the whole class made made films <laughs> and uh, I, I just fell in love with the process right that was it do you remember the first screenplay you ever wrote? I do. It was uh, it was terrible but uh, <laughs> uh, it was a uh, uh, I think it was about a, a deaf guy trying to music, truly bad. But, uh, you know, you got to start somewhere. Exactly. Maybe it's something yeah. to revisit now that you've had yeah. something to marinate yeah. on it. Yeah. You know? yeah. I wrote that in college. And, but uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry you reminded me of that. It's okay. I'll, yeah, I apologize. <laughs> That's all right. Take us through uh, the day that you sold Dead Poets Society. Now, what was going through your head and what were those initial conversations? Like? Uh, you mean on that day? Or yeah, when you I when mean, you got the news that your script had a... Been- well, it was, a, it was an interesting day because um, a few days earlier, I had gone to fire my agent because I had another script. Dead Poets Society at that point had been circulating maybe for a year. Uh, no one had really picked it up and it basically dead. And, um, and, but I had written another script called Love at Second Sight about a psychic detective agent. And that 
I went to fire my agent because I, he hadn't gotten back to me that script. And he said to me, oh, I, I didn't get back to you, but there's a producer that's interested in it. And I think there's going to be a bidding war on it this afternoon. So come back to my office this afternoon. We'll see what happens. So I went back to his office. Indeed, there was a bidding war and it sold that afternoon. And then later on that evening, he called me and said, you're not going to believe it, but Disney wants to buy Dead Poets Society and we're going to make the deal tonight. So he called me at midnight and said, we made that deal. So it's quite a day. <laughs> hey, two, wow. two for one. Yeah, two for one day, you know, so you kind of go from zero to semi-hero. So how long was the process of, uh, from when you wrote the script to when you sold it? I think I wrote it in 85 and sold it in 87, which in, you know, Hollywood terms is pretty, pretty fast these days, yeah. you know. But, yeah. uh, so are you an outliner? Uh, more or less. I, I do a sort of different kind of outline. I, when I start working on a project, I'll just make a lot of notes, you know, and I'll I sort of go out of order. I mean, I'll wake up and go, oh, this scene needs this, and I should have a scene about that, and so forth and so on. So I'll just throw those notes into the computer uh, in, a, in a file with that, that project's name on it. When that file gets to be about 30, 40, 50 pages, and I, I'm really feeling that I got a beginning, middle, and an end, I, I clean those notes up. I put them in, you know, I put spaces between every idea. I print them all out. I slice those ideas up into strips and paragraphs. Sometimes the whole, a note will be a page long, whatever, and put it in a pile next to me, clear off everything on the floor around me and start putting them down in order and on the floor. And that process, you know, there are a lot of things missing still, but the process right. of kind of putting something down that feels like it might be the opening and then putting something down that might be three scenes later and asking myself, gee, I don't know how I'm gonna get from the C here, but not, well, don't worry about it because I got this whole other pile of stuff. To and while I'm putting that other stuff down, suddenly it will, the Eureka effect will happen, you know, and it'll dawn right. on me, oh, I know what to do. Scenes one and three and you know, that's solved. So it's the process itself, I think, helps me yeah. solve the problem. And so when that's all done, I, I put those strips on pieces of eight by 10 uh, paper and I tape them to the paper and I three hole punch them and I put them in a notebook and set it on the desk next to me. And that is essentially the, the outline or guide. A very manual process. Very manual process. <laughs> and every, really? I, every, every time I, I've, I try to, you know, sidestep that process because it's so laborious but I, I, I noticed that the screenplays are just better. They do it if it works, if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know? Exactly. But it's, a pain, in the, it's a pain in the ass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so. so you mentioned in school that you chose to do a film. Or I guess my question is, why did you initially pursue screenwriting instead of directing? It's I initially pursued directing. And gotcha, when gotcha. I, yeah, when I got out here, you know, I mean, I remember when I got my first agent based on a screen, I mean, first of all, people said, if you don't have some kind of leverage, at least a screenplay you want to direct or something like that, or a book you've bought, which I couldn't afford to do, um, or a play, something, you know, you're, you're, it's going to be a very difficult road to go. So write something, get a hold of something that you want to direct. So when I got through writing my first screenplay and got an agent from it, not that other one that I told you about, but the first <laughs> screenplay I wrote when I got to right. Hollywood, um, the, I went to meet the agent who liked the script and said, you know, we want to represent you. And I said, you know, what I really want to do is direct. And she said, oh, really? And I said, yeah. And she goes, go look at that behind that potted plant in the corner. I'm like, what? She goes, look at the potted plant. So I go and I walk in, there's a potted plant in the corner and behind it is a little taped on the wall is a, or, is a little cartoon and it's two monkeys 
in a zoo and they're throwing their feces at the at the the uh, uh, the spectators in the zoo and one of them says to the other, you know what I really want to do is direct. <laughs> and so the agent said to me, that's basically what we think of your chances of directing at this point. You're too young and you know, establish yourself as a screenwriter. And so that was, you know, basically embarking on a career because I should write. <laughs> I think it worked out. Yeah, it worked out, but it was it was not what I wanted to do. Who gets to do? Yeah. So when you start having these meetings with the studios, uh, was there ever a point where they wanted to maybe try to replace you as the writer, or did you have any input on the director? Or, oh you know, yeah. Going back there. Well, the first things that thir- first things that I sold were actually scripts that I wrote as features, or I thought they were features, but it getting made as movies of the week for television. And uh, so the the first one that I wrote. Um, the network wouldn't even approve me to do a rewrite on it. They just said, you know, this is it. You, we got to sell it to us, and somebody else is going to do the next draft. So they said, unless you have something to show us that can prove you can do do better. And I said, well, I've written something else. So I showed them that, and they said nothing. So they hired another writer to write that. And then they called me and said, you know, we'd like to buy the script that you gave us the writings. And I said, what? And they said, and, and we will approve you to rewrite it. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? You know, this is so ridiculous. So I, okay. So I sold them that and uh, went and got their notes, did the rewrite. And when I turned the rewrite in, I walked into their office and handed it to them. And this is the old days. They said, we are obligated by Writers Guild rules to tell you that we've hired another writer to write. And I said, what? you're not going <laughs> to even read it? And they go, probably not. I said, wow. So then they said, well, uh, you know, my agent got really upset with, and so he called them and said, what's the problem? Why wouldn't you let him, you know, why don't you, they said, well, we don't think Tom's writing has enough human. So he said, geez, well, he's written this script, Dead Poets Society. We want you to read that. So he sent that to them and they called and said, okay, we want to buy that and make it. And he can, you're not making this at the network. (laughs) So that was that. And then of course it took two years to sell it, but at least, uh, did make that. But so I did go through, you know, that, that process. And, uh, but by the time dead poet, they bought that, they didn't want to hire it. I don't think I was real medicine. Okay. When did I didn't mean to interrupt you, Angelique. Did you have something? No, I was just saying, wow, that's, oh, okay. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's an, everybody has that. So when was when was Peter Weir brought on board? I, to my knowledge, you guys went through a couple of directors before he was finally settled upon. Yeah, yeah. The the first director um, tried to get Robin Williams to do the movie, and Robin was interested in doing it, but bizarre reasons wouldn't approve the director. So, um, and they actually shot. They they were Studio Disney was convinced that that. Robin would would eventually say yes, so they prepped the whole production and they started shooting. And Robin didn't show up the day he was supposed to on on the schedule, so they canceled the shoot. And uh, they gave the director ten days to try to set it up somewhere else without Robin and you know a couple other actors that no one had heard of at the time. So that failed, and so Disney got it back and they hired uh, Dustin Hoffman to star and direct, and that lasted for about mm, I guess six months. He did, and he was going off to do Rain Man, and we had, it was committed to direct Dead Poets right after that. But that would have put him shooting the movie in late December. And they basically said, you know, we, we got to have fall foliage, etc. So you got to shoot some of it at least November. And he played chicken with them and said no. And, you know, he told me that they're not going to fire me. And they did. And they called me 
right the day they fired him and said he's gone and we've got Peter Weir and Robin Williams is so okay <laughs> that's that's a for you know good turn of events I guess so uh Dustin's a great guy but but uh Robin was more the off the shelf and of course Peter Weir is just a brilliant director so yeah I've heard you say before that um Disney actually burned this and I they did they did I wanted the to director, ask, is that common was that just that? no was no like... no no I mean I think the, the director was told uh, we're canceling the production, burn this, don't pay to have the sets shipped across country, burn, have them burned and then come home. And he just found that such an odd and offensive thing that he had the cameraman go down and they found the kilns where the, the, the sets were being burned and they shot the, the fire, the, the sets going up on fire. And he called Disney and said, we have some dailies from the first day shoot. And like, what? They called me and said, there are apparently some dailies. So I, you, I said, sure. So I went in and it was just the sets being burned. <laughs> That's crazy. I wonder why they I, made that decision. You know, I just save money. Oh, yeah. That's usually what it comes so, down to. Absolutely. Always. So there's so much emotion packed into Dead Poets Society. Um, extremely powerful scenes. As you're writing the script yourself, um, are you working through or conscious of these emotions as well? And do the same scenes that strike us in the film strike you in the script? I think so. I mean, I, by the, you know, the outlining process to me kind of was the writing, you know, it was so detailed in that strip thing that I do that by the time I was actually putting the scenes together, it was almost more like, you know, cutting and pasting and rewriting. So, but a few days after I wrote in the, the scenes in conceptually felt powerful. And so, yes, I was having the same thing. And that's the ideal because a lot of times you write things and you give it to people and you think you've written something really funny or something moving and people are like, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's, it's disconcerting to have that disconnect between your feel the feelings of your readers or audience. It happens. And then you have to sort of dig in and find out why, what, what, <laughs> what am I seeing that they're not seeing? Right. So if you had to put a percentage number wise on it, how much of these characters are uh, some of your own friends or people you've grown up with? Well, they were not all together in one place, but I would say every character was, you know, once I figured out what the function of each character was going to be in the film, then I started looking around and, okay, I know who this guy was, a person who I could cast in part. And I do that with every you know, to, to the degree that I can sometimes you can't find some right. but uh <laughs> Bob and what about Bob I couldn't I had a friend who was somewhat you know that that sort of uh, hypochondriacal but not <laughs> not not that <laughs> that not, so uh but yeah I so to that extent it's completely but there's no there the plot in that story now which character do you most Todd. which one's you Todd. Todd. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, to some extent that writing that movie was my journey on shining. Oh, I, I could see that. Definitely. Yeah. Were there any parts of the script that you had to surrender or cut due to the studio that you kind of regret or have any? Nothing? No, mm -mm, mm -mm, no. I mean, Peter Weir had total control over what was going to be. We had a couple of discussions about a couple of scenes. He, he won those discussions. I mean, he said to me, ever make cut any. So he said, if, if it's, if we disagree vehemently, if I won't make them, <laughs> right. Well, that, that's not so, but we did finally come to, that's a great relationship to have with the director. It really is. Truly. Really, really lucky. In it. I've waited almost 20 minutes to tell you that Dead Poet Society is my favorite movie. I was just trying to, Oh, well, thank you. Trying that's... to hold off on it. Okay. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's the most emotionally devastating movie I've ever seen. Wow. <laughs> it absolutely destroys me. Yeah. yeah. 
I think I think I thought the ending was somehow uplifting, but maybe, maybe it's kind of yeah. bittersweet. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is. And like up to this point, when I saw uh, Dead Poet Society, I know Robin Williams had done uh, Good Morning Vietnam, Popeye, Mork and Mindy, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But for me, this is the role that catapulted him to the Robin Williams we know today, you know. Right. So while you're there in that moment, can you sense that there's something special going on with this actor in this role? Yes, absolutely. You know, because you, you're really, when you're there and you're watching it, you're just trying to throw yourself right into working or not. Throw, you surrender your, He reached a point where, wow. And especially when we would watch Dallas, because there it is, the screen. Peter Weir would often put a little music under it and just like, you know, gave me chills. So it was great. But then, you know, you, you, you're the writer and you, you know, you hope that that you'll feel that way, whether the audience is going to feel that way is a whole other <laughs> question. So. Right. Speaking of Peter, you've uh, said like he had some fun and interesting directing techniques and you were there trying to learn how to direct. Yeah. 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 So when you went, on to direct uh past dead poet society did you take any of his techniques uh no with you no because i didn't understand them you know yeah i mean if i had understood it i would have done it but i didn't i mean he had this he he almost never talked to the actors about anything you know he we we was cast in a way that he you know, he knew those boys were like people for the for the you know right actors for the parts and then he um but he would often just, he would play some music right before he would say action and then cut the music off. And then the scene, would, they would play this. I don't even think the actors knew what that was supposed to be, but, uh, you know, it worked. So, uh, and he would occasionally say, you know, back it off a little or give it a little more here or there, but very rarely. And we, we had a reading, but no rehearsal. He didn't want to have a reading. I asked him, please have a reading. He said, okay. And I went back to my room that night, rewrote the whole script. And he, what are you out of your mind? <laughs> so, so. so take us mortals through the Oscar process. Did you get a, did you get a, a summons that you were being nominated? And did you, yeah. did you expect uh, to uh, I was, possibly win? I was kind of, you know, not really expecting it for whatever reason. Maybe I was just in some kind of denial. And um, <laughs> I remember going to a meeting in November after the movie had come out, I think June, as producer said to me, you know, you, you guys might get a nomination. Okay, good. And then, but I was busy working on other stuff. Uh, I think I was working on about Bob. So just thoroughly immersed in that. I remember the phone ringing at like five o'clock in the morning and Stephen Haft, one of the producers, was whispering to me. He's going, oh, 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 wait, listen, listen. I'm going, Stephen, what's going on? He goes, shh, shh, shh. He goes, oh yeah, okay, you got nominated for Best Screenplay. Oh, oh okay, Robin got nominated. I said, what is this? He goes, it's the Oscars, you idiot. What do you think? <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, right. So I was kind of, I don't know where I was, but I was, I remember being shocked by it. But, uh, and then it was just, you know, you're kind of off to the race parties that kind of stuff for a while and you know the movie i think it won the bafta for best picture but but uh when harry met sally won screenplay for bafta so i just kind of thought you know it's not gonna win but it'll it's great to be nominated so uh at the oscars i was still very shy and i can remember saying i don't want to go because uh, i don't <laughs> want if, if god forbid i win i'm gonna have to get up there i'm not doing that my family said, you know, we're all coming out. You're going. Okay. So, um, you know, I was, I remember sitting there when they were finally reading off the category before they opened the envelope thinking, please, don't, I don't want to have to get up there. And then, <laughs> then it was, you know, and, uh, and I, as I was walking up onto the stage, 
somebody in the orchestra, a friend of mine's wife was in the orchestra pit, was one of the singers. He said, Tom, Tom, Tom. And I'm looking down and I'm talking to her. Oh, Donna, nice to see you. What are you doing? <laughs> she goes, you better get up there. And I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> I was just in some very strange space. And then uh, uh, I got up and kind of babbled through a speech. I forgot to thank a couple people. Um, I, I, when I walked off, my presenter, Jane Fonda, said to me, what? You just want an Oscar. You look like you, you know, you're having a heart attack. I said, oh, I forgot to thank this person. I forgot to thank that person. She goes, Well, you just thank them next time. I thought, well, it's easy for you to say. But, uh, okay. So uh, we got it. We were at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion that year. So we got into an elevator and we rode down into the basement and they have this stage set up with these giant plastic Oscars and you're standing on stage and there's a, some bleachers in front of you and the, the press is there. And the press, Jane walks me and says, this is Tom Shulman. He just won an Oscar. You know, any questions? Jane had just gotten kind of come back to Hollywood. She was with Ted Turner. So people going, Jane, what's it like, like life like with Ted? Jane, you know, what are you going to be doing with movies? Jane, Jane, she goes, wait, 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 wait. This is not about me. This is about Tom. Please direct your questions at Tom. So there's a pause and someone says, Tom, what's it like to get an Oscar from Jane? And Jane goes, all right, that's it. And she walked me off. And I just thought, you know, you kind of go from this high to very low right away, you know. And, and uh, you know, I got in an elevator, went up, snuck back into the audience with my statue. And just, there you are. And so it was quite a strange little, but, but fun. I had my family there, you know, crazy. Was there a ripple effect post-Oscars? Did you start fielding more phone calls? Were more people wanting to have you... Right. I did not get off the phone for probably three weeks, literally. I mean, just I, when I got home, my answering machine was broken in 300 messages. Wow. And all the ones after that, the, the, that was in the days with the tape, you know, so it ran yeah. out of tape. And um, I had to get on a plane, I think a week later and go uh, meet with Bill Murray about what about Bob. So that was kind of the end of it for a while. But I can remember just everywhere I went, you know, you, you know, you just, somebody wants to take you out to breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a year. It's it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you just mentioned Bill Murray, like you've worked with two comedic geniuses, Bill Murray and Robin Williams, you know, need I say more? Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember specifically about those guys working with them? Any similarities, any weird anecdotes? (laughs) Robin, certainly just a very sweet guy and a lovely guy to work with and just, you know, uh, uh, couldn't have been, more, you know, sort of more generous in a way about the way he dealt with everybody. You know, Bill less so. <laughs> you know, I think that's <laughs> all I can say, you know, but but Bill is a genius. So it, to give everybody the right. quirks and so forth. There was a very short turnaround on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and you had to do the script from a drama to a comedy in about a week. Uh, so yeah, how the hell did yeah. you pull it off? That was just one of the most difficult weeks of my life, I think, in terms of just sleepless. They, I think the script came to me on a Tuesday night and I read it and, you know, they said, we need to make this into a comedy and I'm just need to do it by a week from Sunday. I just thought, I, uh, no, no, I can't do this, you know, and my, my, my agents, my agent said, I've already said yes for you. You have to, you're starting tomorrow morning. So I said, oh, my God, you can't do this to me. He said, it's done. You know, just go talk to them and see what, you know. So I went over there to Disney and they said, yeah, it's got to be a comedy, blah, blah, blah. Start today. I said, guys, I have no idea what to do yet. I'll start on Monday. And they said, no, no, you can't start on Monday. This has to be in a pouch 
a week from Saturday to Rick Moranis in New York. If Rick says, reads it and says he's still in the movie, we're making the movie. And if not, we don't know what we're going to do. We'll probably bang him. So you got to start today. And I said, well, I have to think about this. So they said, well, well, all right, let's, let's screen the movie that inspired the original group. So we screened The Incredible Shrinking Man, which I'd seen before. It's hardly a comedy, <laughs> existential drama, basically. Um, and then we, I went and saw all the the uh, storyboards they'd done for the the various action scenes, the beach. Uh, and then they basically said, "So you're on your own." And uh, God, but they had uh, a duo named uh, Ray Gideon and uh, Bruce Evans on as producers at that, time, who were uh, brilliant guys. And Ray said to me. You know, just remember to think about what it was like to be that age and what it would be like if this happened, you know, just 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 personalize. It. And I said, OK, so I started remembering that a senior in high school, I broke my leg. And, uh, the doctor came. I, there was going to be a, I had a, a hot date that weekend. And I remember the doctor coming and saying, you know, you're going to probably be in traction for three or four weeks, maybe a couple of months. It was a bad break. <clears throat> and. All I cared about was that I wasn't going to be able to go out on that date that week. And that's that gave me the, the end to the story, which was these kids have been shrunk, but they're all they care about is the stuff they cared about, you know, before Amy, the main character, wants to go. She's got a she's got the hots for this guy. And, then, you know, she just wants to get big again so she can do that. So that kind of gave me the the angle I needed to start working on. It felt like a kind of comedic angle. So and then the. So on Monday, all weekend, those guys calling me, start now, start now, start now. And I said, no, starting Monday. So Monday morning, I got up and I think for the first time in years had writers, I just couldn't sit there paralyzed. And my wife said to me, don't write the first scene, write the second scene. I said, okay. So I started doing that and five minutes into that, <clears throat> jumped back into the first scene and then just wrote, uh, you know, 50 pages a day for every day basically just 50 pages turn it in work on the next 50 pages turn it in rewrite the first 50 pages turn it in you know it was insane insane so you know 22 hours a day catnap sleeping horrifying and uh not knowing whether i was coming or going meeting with the director and the and gideon and evans and talking through this and talking through that and saturday morning they said took it out of my hands and sent it to rick moranis i've completely forgot about that just they took it away and sunday afternoon i was sound asleep and my wife said rick moranis is on the phone and i said oh my god and i'm like oh god rick Moran, no so i pick up the phone and he goes i love it thank you that was it and so it was just like what an experience, you know. Yeah, that's uh, oh wow, that's almost crazier <laughs> than the Dead Poet Society, you know. Under the yeah, yeah, just just nuts, but uh, but satisfying in the end, you know, because you're just you're up against the wall and you're either gonna figure it out or not. So, uh, so you wrote I guess, the best family comedies in six days. Well, I had the the basic, you know, it was a rewrite, so right, the yeah. structure was there. Take all the credit by any stretch, but. The, you know, they, they uh, I think they were bouncing back and forth between how much comedy, how much drama to have. Mm -hmm. So they weren't focused on on doing just the studio wanted them. So, uh, and I think what I heard had happened was the team that, that was doing the movie had decided to do all the special effects sort of analog so that the bee would be a man in a bee suit. The ant would be a person in an ant suit. So Disney had them shoot some tests of that. And when they saw it, they just said, you're done. We're, <laughs> we're in big trouble. This doesn't work at all. So that's how, that's what happened to them. What, 
what is the typical writer director relationship like on the set does the director usually ask the writer for input is there a back and forth do you ever say hey that's not really what i had in mind or anything like that? typically the writer's not on this it's pretty unusual for i mean peter weir said i want you on the set and if you want to direct it you know, i've done eight movies you know pick up anything you ask me any question which is just amazing a director that just sense um so uh but you know in hollywood Typically, I think, uh, and I don't have any stats on, I think most of the time the writer is not on. Uh, if the writer's on the set, you know, I mean, Peter would say to me, feel free to just make any comment or take. And I remember <laughs> after like the second take, I tapped him on the shoulder and I was going, he goes, do me a favor, just count to 10 before you say anything. And then, then you can say whatever. And I got, I thought, oh my God, well, I'll just go home. And he goes, no, 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 don't get your feelings hurt. Just, just, just give me 10 seconds to have my own thoughts and then we can talk about it. I said, okay. So he was incredibly generous. And, uh, right. and we would go at the end of each day, we'd go back to his little office trailer and talk about everything that was done and what stuff we might need to tweak or change or whatnot. He was, he was amazing. Great. So yeah. from the outside looking in, it feels like writers face a lot of opposition. You know, there's so many management levels you have to navigate. People have Absolutely. to prove this and that. So how do you work through all these things while attempting to try to maintain the integrity of your baby? You know, at that stage in my career, I did not know enough to be politic. So I would fight everything that I thought was wrong. I would just say, no, nah, you know, and I, and I would be nice about it. I would go, I don't think this that's not a good idea. And for some reason, people kept me around. But uh, later, I, you know, I've been told by a lot of people and I started to feel it myself like, hey, just, you know, choose your battles, that, those kinds of things. And I, I still think in the end, it's better to just, you know, if you feel like something's going in the wrong direction, say so. If you feel like that line's not a good line, say so. If you're not sure, say, I don't know, I'm not sure. Don't cave in, let your, you know, and, and, and try to be open. I'm always feeling like I want to hear a better idea than I think I put right. on the page or than I have. That's great. But, uh, but if something hits me and strikes me, feels wrong, you know, I'm going to say so. And I think what writers need to do, probably get a lot of people fired if they <laughs> follow that advice. <laughs> well, well said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who are some of your personal favorite authors? Um, screenwriters, yeah, uh, screenwriters. Alvin Sargent, Bill Goldman, you know, uh, the, the, all the guys that collaborated with Kurosawa. Uh, no, just uh, Robert Riskin, who wrote some of what they call the Capra film, uh, Coppola, uh, John Milius, uh, Robert Town, you know, the, the people that wrote the, the, the brothers that wrote Casablanca, the Epstein brothers. More favorite scripts than favorite writers. I think, you know, we all have a few good ones in us, maybe. And some people have a lot of those <laughs> Goldman and Alvin Sargent. So to date, what is the best piece of writing advice that you Whew, uh I would say it's something that I heard from Robert Town. You know, fully explore the world of you. Know it like you know other people. I mean, you are the, you need to be the, mm -hmm. so, you know, how much research you have to do really depends on how much you already, but really have it. So there's a kind of immersion that goes, you know, what's right or wrong in every, with every. So let's say you're sitting down for the evening to watch your favorite films. What's on the lineup? Um, you know, I mean, the Godfather is always, no matter where I, if I flip a channel and there's, it's on, I'm instantly riveted. It's as if so strange to watch a movie so many times, you know, knowing exactly what's going to happen and yet <laughs> still be completely riveted. Um, you know, King's Speech recently, which is not that recent, love that. Um, 
uh, I'd have to have thousands uh, ground on. Um, I mean, strangely enough, the movie Pie, Darinovsky's movie, sticks mm-hmm. sticks with me. Uh, it's kind of such a brilliant kind of merger of low budget, you know, what what resources he had with mm-hmm. with a story. The, that place where the, the limitations actually be better. I thought that was extraordinary. I'm jealous of. Uh, look at all the time. Sounds like us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I love Chinatown. I uh, a lot of thrillers. Yeah, I had to look at. <laughs> and when you're writing, um, and a character starts to to come to life, do you do you have a particular actor or a particular voice or or person in mind? I usually populate it with someone that I know. You know, so as the voice emerges, somehow a picture of that person and I go, oh, this is like my friend Jack. And uh, What About Bob is the only movie where uh, I was told, because uh, Alvin Sargent, one of the producers, also a writer, I think a few weeks after I took the job, the Writers Guild went on strike for five months. So we decided, you know, we're not going to, no writing, but we can talk about it and just talk about it in the most general terms without talking about any story or like that, like casting. And I remember Alvin Sargent saying, you know, I think that that Bill Murray guy would be a good model for Bob. And as soon as he said that, so he's the only movie star I had. And then we were lucky enough to get it. What was the most jarring aspect for you jumping from screenwriting to directing? The exhaustion of it. And, you know, it was like, honey, I shrunk the kids every day for six months. Once you start shooting, you're kind of playing chess with the gods, you know, because you go out to shoot a a sunny shot in the desert and it's pouring down 50 mile an hour winds. What are you going to do? You know, you lose that day or you lose half of that and you you never get back to shoot that stuff. And now the universe is rewriting your story because that story is... uh, you know, everything in that story connects to everything. You lose one connection and suddenly it's, uh-oh. So it was that way all the time. Or an actor is or somebody's sick, or it's just... It, and so this constant sense of rush, 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 no time to really enjoy the shot. It's just get the shot as fast as you can and get on to the next shot and try to make it. So it's, I remember when I was, uh, I had a driver who would pick me up because I would have died from exhaustion driving on the highway. And as we were riding out to the set every day, these vans of people from outward bound would pass us. They were going up into the mountains, these kids. And I just thought, God, I'd love this. Oh my, instead of going to shoot this movie. <laughs> but and so it got to the certain point where like a prisoner, you've got a calendar on the wall and you're just Xing off every day. You're so tired, you you know, you don't really care anymore how the movie turns out. You do, but you're, I, you, I got maybe three and a half, four hours of sleep a night for six weeks. And after a while, it just scares you. It's going, I'm going to, you know, die for sleep. And you try to sleep longer, but you know, all the problems of the next day, or the last day or whatever, just floating through your mind and you can't turn it off. So, I mean, I had enough time to sleep, not enough peace right. to sleep. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. I can imagine going from, you know, writing, that's very personal. You, you only rely on yourself. And not only are you the director and everybody's asking you questions, you also have to manage all of the actors and all the personalities. And, you know, this guy wants Brown in M&M's and, you know, right, right, right. I didn't mind that. You know, I didn't, I mean, I, I had, a you know, some people, I remember somebody on an airplane saying, you wrote this, do, do you, do you know, do you see like the, the rooms or the people? And I'm like, 
you know, I didn't want to say it, but of course you see the rose. <laughs> I mean, you see the whole thing. It may change when they make the movie, but you have a vision in your mind of what the room looks like and what the people look like and what they're wearing. So when you're directing one, you you know the answers to the questions, you know. I mean, people may come up with better ideas, but at least you can right. engage in the dialogue without being, people can ask you 50 questions and you can answer them. But it's just, and so prep was not so hard for me, but getting to the shooting and just the pace, which we had daunting and no fun, no fun. So, well, we've touched on Bill Murray and Robin Williams, but you've also worked with Joe Pesci. So what right. was, what was right. your experience like with Joe? Joe is, Joe is that guy from, <laughs> from Goodfellas, you know, that's, that's, that's who he is. So, uh, uh, you know, we started out, it was really rocky for a while. And then, you know, I think he was upset because we had, you know, moving at a fast pace and so forth and so on. And then, you know, we kind of reached a, a, a nice place with, remember Joe being, you know, he's very dyspepsic, very grumbly. One day my mother came to the set, a completely different person. <laughs> just that, you know, kind of Italian thing with the mother. Yeah. And it was just thought, God, if I just brought my much better, but, uh, <laughs> So it was difficult, but it was, you know, ultimately he was, we, we had, a, and he did it. So I was right. always grateful. Well, Tom, we're not going to hold you hostage all night. I guess I'll just ask you, like, do you have anything on the horizon? Anything in the works? What's yeah, going? yeah, yeah. I'm working on four things at once in the land of COVID. So it's, I don't, uh, one project I have with a couple other writers and a producer is sort of you know, sitting and waiting to go, but we're not going to, nobody's going to, we're not going to make it. Studio's not going to make it until... COVID is, you know, till it's cheaper, frankly, and less, <laughs> less, you know, I, I think the studios care about human life, but I know they care about money. So yeah. the, the cost of doing things these days with, with COVID is, is pretty high. So, and I've got a, um, an indie movie that I wrote and I'm going to direct that I've got some financing for, which sort of got, you know, waylaid by COVID. So I'm trying to hold that together until, um, until it's done and <clears throat> the virus is over and we can make it. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> excited about both of those. And then I'm writing two other things right now while nothing else. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Angelique, do you have anything for Tom before we cut him loose here? Uh, I do have my, my one final question. <laughs> sure. So, you know, um, what's your go-to movie snack? So, like, what's that one munchie you got to have just to make that perfect movie-watching experience? Oh, my God. Well, it's popcorn. Oh, right. I mean, I just, that's just been, I cannot watch a movie without a bag of popcorn. uh, And I went through a period where popcorn started upsetting my stomach. And then I'm just like, no, sorry, I'm going to have to live with an upset stomach because I can't watch the movie (laughs) without popcorn. (laughs) What's yours? Oh, gosh. Um, I like pizza. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's my new one. Pizza. There we go. Yeah. 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 To me, that's that's a home food for TV. You know, in the theater, it's it's the popcorn, and I'll pick a theater based on how good their popcorn. If there's four, two places to go, I'll drive an extra twenty minutes just because they have. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, in the theater, it's definitely popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost sacrilegious. I'm not. I'm not a fan of popcorn. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I know. I've... And I talked to you for all this time? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's why I wait till the end. I always wait till the <laughs> right. end that revelation. We're done. It's too late Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, it's been great talking to you. We're going to cut you loose here. and Okay. It's been a pleasure. All right, man. It was great to meet okay. you. Have a great night, man. Ditto. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Welcome. Bye. Bye.